Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Johal Show podcast today on the pod with Metro Vancouver dealing with housing affordability issues, transportation challenges, and struggling to fund multi-billion dollar infrastructure projects. Is having 21 municipalities governing the region the most cost-effective way to tackle our challenges today? The case for amalgamation. Plus, the National Hockey League may have a don't-say-gay policy. Our Jerry Mayor Judson speaks of Vancouver's cutting-edges hockey club that embraces diversity. Plus, new Canucks season, same old Canucks. Can Vancouver inspire a new generation of hockey fans? And the triumph of imagination, politics, and engineering. Author Stephen Bond joins us as we discuss his new book, Dominion, which looks at the building of the Canadian Pacific Railway. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim outlined a new housing plan today, and it appears he found inspiration from neighbouring Burnaby. Mr. Sim announced a seven-point housing plan he will bring to council next week. One of the priorities, Sim says, is to build higher-density housing around SkyTrain stations uh, in Vancouver. Think Metrotown Development or on the old Expo line or Brentwood Mall and Lougheed Mall along the Millennium Line. Uh, Sim and his upper, uh, sorry, council supermajority say when the Expo line was built in the 1980s, many surrounding neighbourhoods did not prioritise population density around stations at that time. Here is Ken Sim talking about the time frame of the motion, which he says he will introduce next week. The time frame is as quick as possible, and it's, you know, it, we're not going to give a number on units. The, the role of the City of Vancouver is to create an environment where we can build more housing of all types as quickly as possible. So the targets we would be talking about is how do we actually reduce times to process permits and to allow people to uh, build quicker. That was Mayor Ken Sim earlier today. Well, joining me now is Andy Yen. He's an urban planner and aging professor at Simon Fraser University to talk a little bit about uh, this plan today, the seven-point plan. Andy, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, Jess. Good afternoon. First and foremost, overall, what did you think of this announcement today? Well, I think that a lot of it actually is a rehash of announcements and policies that I think have been pursued over the last couple of years, that there isn't particularly anything new, I think one can say. I mean, they, that I, th- uh, I think that have been, that haven't been made over the last couple of years. So I think that it's really one that I think is a kind of, uh, I think, a re- a recital of what's happened before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I, when, he, when I heard about the, we want to be more like Burnaby, I said, well, you know, the Expo line <laughs> opened up in the city <laughs> uh, just prior to or in and around Expo. And, uh, you know, Metrotown's been around for a long time. That that style of, uh, of housing greater density around Skytrain's been around a long time. Uh, and they continue with it, as I said, at Brentwood and Lougheed Mall. Uh, and many other communities are doing the same as well. You'll see more of that out in Surrey as well, along King George. Uh, one of the other things that the uh, Mayor Sim talked about are, are two dozen villages in the city as part of this Vancouver plan, sort of lower density areas for, for the city, about 26 of them. Your thoughts on that type of planning? Well, I think that it's certainly, again, something that has been, I think, in, in, in underway for a long time. But I think overall, one has to also understand that faster doesn't necessarily mean more affordable. That I think hmm. that part of this is actually a problem definition issue, whereby the issue isn't necessarily just faster, but it's affordability. And it's affordability on local incomes that I think have been a huge challenge ahead of us that while we're able to produce housing, you've got to remember the city of Vancouver produces housing anywhere about probably around 5,000 to 7,000 units per year, mm-hmm. uh, per year over the last 20 years. So that has actually been pretty steady. 
And so if you're increasing the speed, I think part of this is also looking at the infrastructure that can actually build housing and actually finding that that infrastructure is already going at a pretty high capacity and how much of these types of policies uh, would result in increasing that that capacity to put up more housing. We have uh, Kirk LaPointe joining us uh, at 4 o'clock today. Uh, he, of course, uh, works at the Business of Vancouver. He's a publisher and executive mm-hmm. editor for mm-hmm. Business in Vancouver. And mm-hmm. um, he wrote a an interesting piece in regards mm-hmm. to and generally I don't think you know Kirk would push for more government but but he says you know we have mm-hmm. to start looking at regional government for Vancouver mm-hmm. and and you know we'll have that conversation at four o'clock but I, you know as I saw Ken Sim there with his council colleagues he's got a super majority and I thought right. well this is nice but you know it all ends in ends at Boundary Road and then you know you right. in, you admire what Burnaby's doing and you know, what's Port Moody going to do about it? What's Coquitlam doing? Right. What's Surrey doing? Langley Township. And, and right. it's sort of, you know, you almost want a, a, a regional plan that sort of it's all yeah. coalesces. I'm not saying they're all doing different things and maybe it is working, but when you watch this, it's like, okay, well, that's one community. It's a large one, but there's 20 other municipalities here. Right. How, you know, how much are we working together to, to build this broader supply that is so desperately needed? I think the broader supply, diversity of supply, I think one of the greatest planning, uh, I think, ideas that come, in, that come out of Metro Vancouver is idea, the idea of cities in a sea of green. And really how much that is, I think, an understanding that it isn't just Vancouver going alone, but that this issue around affordability and, and prosperity, one should add, is really one that is regional and one that's a team sport as opposed to a single player sport. Yeah, if you were to advise the city today, if Ken Sim came to you and said, look, uh, you know, I got these seven priorities, is that too many? Would you say, look, focus on these two things? You've still got infrastructure, sewers, pipes, and everything else that have to actually, you know, work with your housing plan as well. What, what kind of advice would you give the city yourself? Well, I think that you got to, I, I think it's really how much of this all goes around three areas, supply, demand, and finance. And I think while some of these initiatives really does attempt to look at issues of increasing supply, it's really what's going on in terms of demand and finance that I think are, are, are really changing. I mean, you can imagine right now the effects of interest rates and how um, the interest rates have really, I think, changed the dynamic through which um, people can't afford or can't afford units anymore, uh, much less, I think, the role of demand that I think that while there has been a discussion around dealing with Airbnb and really the effects, the negative effects of short-term rental on rental units, that I think that this is really something that's going to require, I think, the efforts of the province and the federal government to engage in. I think that part of it is also um, the idea that somehow Vancouver around SkyTrain stations, um, those previous SkyTrain stations you have talked about, are going to become similar to Metrotown or Brentwood. I think it, it's problematic um, simply because Brentwood and Metrotown had very large plots of land that were, say, uh, former mall parking lots that had been seen mm-hmm. that development, as opposed to uh, small parcels through which folks may or may not be ready to move. So I think that this is really um, a, 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 it's a complicated picture, and there aren't really s- simple ideas that can happen quickly because Vancouver is in a different stage of its urban development. And part of it is really trying to adapt and understand that Vancouver may not necessarily be able to see that type of development in a way that's going to be as fast as opposed to, say, a strategy of housing and transportation and economic development that can occur throughout the region, which I think uh, connects up to Kirk's points. Hmm. So should there be a greater focus, do you think, on gentle density, that idea of having the three or four story building in once was a single family neighborhood uh, instead of work, worrying about, uh, you know, a metro town in East Vancouver or something a little bit more smaller and compact, but just as dense? Uh, should we stay away from that type of thinking and should be more about gentle density in, in, in more single family neighborhoods? Because the missing middle, as we keep talking about, is that two and three bedroom townhome, the three bedroom exactly. condominium. Is that what the focus should be on? I think that's certainly an avenue. We may not have much choices just simply because of really how built up we've been and the kind of, I think, rates of change that will occur in the various neighborhoods in the city of Vancouver. That there are, of course, certain opportunities that do come up once in a while, but then the overall urban fabric in the city of Vancouver has been pretty well established and 
unless you suddenly offer um, homeowners, say, two or three million dollars above their assessment value, the chances of them moving is uh, is not as going to happen as fast as as redevelopment might like. And I think the the sum effect is really uh, understanding what you're what you can deliver as opposed to just promising um, promising change. Yeah, I mean, you can say, well, you know, it's all well and good to say you want a metro type town type of development. One would argue you have one. It's called Oak Ridge, and I'm not <laughs> sure how many local people making local right. salaries can afford a lot of what is being built. I drove by there a couple of weeks ago, and, and there's just no way a lot of right. folks can afford it, right? Right. At two or $3,000 a square foot, that is a really small population in the city of Vancouver that can afford that type of housing. And I think that that is really a challenge is that it's not speed that's the problem in housing in Vancouver. It's affordability. Yeah. And it's affordability linked to local incomes. And you got to remember, the average renter in the city of Vancouver may be at best earning $60,000 a year. And with most purpose-built rental being well above that number, that's a really big mismatch. And we're not even including home ownership. But that is, I think, the major challenge. And I don't think you necessarily see, I think, uh, any re- any big direct responses to that uh, to that challenge here. That's for renters. I mean, would you know off the top of your head what the median salary would be for for a homeowner, like or just a general median salary in this in this city? It's about seventy thousand, isn't it? Seventy seven or something? or close to Funny that. Enough, eighty thousand. Eighty thousand. Okay, so it's very <laughs> it's, close. It's, it's eighty thousand. Yeah, it's very it's very close. And I mean that that is the challenge is that you know as much as you talk about supply, it's how that supply meets a demand, yeah. and in certain cases of demand that has been systematically um, forgotten. That, I think, is a huge public policy issue and the kind of density. And, and I think that that's really, I think, back, uh, backstepping on the kind of solutions you're looking at, that how do we produce a home that's $600,000 for a two-bedroom, as an example? Uh, how do we produce rentals that are, say, $1,700 a month? That Looking at really whom we're trying to house and what it takes to house them in terms of density, in terms of design and transportation and amenities, I think is the avenue to pursue as opposed to just density numbers and just talking about uh, just really the speed of development. Andy, thank you for your time today, my friend. Always a pleasure. Well, it's been more than five months since NHL hockey was played at Rogers Arena, but that changes tonight as the Vancouver Canucks take on the Edmonton Oilers in their season opener. I don't know about you, but I've heard a lot of pessimism over the last few months about the Canucks, not just diehard fans who can probably recite obs- obscure player stats, but casual fans as well. Not uh, not many people, I should say, are happy with the, the way things have ended for the Canucks, and I've been, haven't been happy for a while in regards to the Canucks' performance. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the game today before the puck drop, but also the overall how the Canucks are doing is Blake Price. Blake uh, is co-host of the Zagaris and Price show at com. Blake, thank you for joining us today. Anytime. Uh, new hockey season. Uh, give me a sense of where the Canucks are. I mean, I hear lots of things from hockey fans in this studio and outside of uh, our station. Your sense of where the Canucks are in regards to not just heading into this season, more importantly, their relationship with, with, with fans. Well, you know, this is a season of optimism, I think, for the Vancouver Canucks. They've made enough changes that I think people see at least incremental, if not um, sort of moderate improvement for the team for this season. But it's still uh, an administrative group, a management group that's trying to outrun some of the mistakes of the past. And this is the problem that, um, and I think is maybe why owners sometimes are a little bit reticent to make changes. It's tough to outrun the past. And right now the the, uh, Canucks are still sort of looking at some of the mistakes of the prior management group and wondering how they extract themselves from those issues. And... You know, the uh, mistakes are coming to home to roost even for opening night where the Canucks don't have enough cap space to fill the holes left behind by some late preseason injuries. A couple of guys are, are pretty 50-50 to go in the opening game, and all of a sudden you can't bring up somebody to fill that to fill that hole. So it's quite, quite possible they're going to be short on their lineup for the opening game of the season. So a lot of optimism, and yet still some of the mistakes of the past are, are coming home to roost. Uh, I I saw a, a headline in one of these fan blogs uh, recently that said the Canucks are built for the casual fan. 
and, and I and my from what I could tell by the headline and what I read, it was really about they're not building a team that's going to ultimately bring a Stanley Cup here. Uh, there isn't uh, not maybe not a seriousness, but certainly there hasn't been a, an overarching desire to really do whatever it takes to bring a Stanley Cup here. Your thoughts on that? I mean, in regards to the core relationship with the fan, there's the diehard fan, then there is the casual fan. Is Vancouver still a, a hockey town in your mind? Um, no, Vancouver to me has never been a hockey town. Vancouver is a Canuck town, which is a, a huge distinction in that if there's nothing good going on with the Canucks or the Canucks are done, um, and, and if your people or your listeners are screaming at the radio, I watch the playoffs even when the Canucks are you're in the minority. You just are. We can see it in our own, in, in our, uh, our own research. That the interest in, in NHL hockey goes precipitously down as soon as the Canucks are eliminated. So I call it a Canucks town. Um, and, you know, at large, what that article was pointing out is, is, is not wrong. I mean, the, the owner, I think, gets sucked into, oh, we've been bad for so long, let's do anything we can to be more competitive, to have a playoff push, get into the playoffs, and anything can happen. Well, you know, that's a popular refrain from a desperate uh, team, that if you get into the playoffs, anything can happen. Generally speaking, that's not the case. Generally, you have to be a decent team to not only make it to the playoffs, but to win a round, and certainly to make it to the Stanley Cup Final, and even more certainly to win the Stanley Cup Final. There are very few Cinderella teams. Unfortunately, Canuck fans know all too well that it can happen um, as an outlier, because in 2012, when the Canucks won the President's Trophy, of course, they were eliminated by the uh, Los Angeles Kings, who went on to win the Stanley Cup after being the last team into the Western Conference playoffs. So it's not impossible, but it's not something you can bank on. It's not a realistic goal. And and right now, because the the, the Canucks have been hemmed in by cap restraints, um, they're forced to do sort of half measures to make themselves better in the eyes of the Canucks fans while probably not having a really great long-term outlook. Hmm. Uh, this is a difficult question for you to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you think the Aquilines are enjoying owning the Canucks right about now? Um, I don't think they like a lot of the trappings that go along with it, the public scrutiny into your personal life, all of that is, has caught uh, the, uh, the owner probably um, where he didn't want to be caught. Um, but I think he's probably desperate and the family is desperate to see this through and be the heroes that they would be bringing this town its first ever Stanley Cup after over 50 years of existence. So I think that lure is still re- really strong for the Aquilini. And I'm just guessing here, but I would guess that's the that's what keeps them going here is we're going to be the guys that have statues built for them because they we finally delivered the Stanley Cup. Um, as much as there are a lot of peripheral hassles that I'm sure that they find a massive hassle. <laughs> that That is true. I mean, there's been no talk yet of the Aquilini's interested in selling it though, right? I mean, they still are, even though it may be frustrating at times, uh, they generally would look to be wanting to keep it and stick around. Yeah, nothing tangible. Um, uh, the patriarch's health, of course, is uh, a bit of a uh, an issue at, at stake. Of you know, would would the same sort of uh, wants be there if uh, Luigi uh, does pass on in X number of years? Um, you know, would would that still be the same sort of situation that we find themselves in? Uh, they find themselves in now. Hard to know. I mean, that's that's their business, but it's only speculation. Now, there's nothing tangible to hold on to uh, that leads you to believe they, they want to sell now or any time and even in the near future. And I guess you also got to remind yourself, no, what, no matter what the complaining complaints are, whether the talk is off the ice, the minute that puck drops, the season opener, people that, that are really engaged get engaged pretty quick. They do, and lots gets forgiven pretty quickly when the season begins. The, the, the problem is the scars are so uh, easily accessed right now for Canucks fans that there's a lot of pressure for the Canucks to win early. And they don't have to set the world on fire. Mm-hmm. They have to be competitive at the very least in the first two months of the season because Canucks fans have, have uh, learned in recent years that, uh, that their team is out of it by December the 1st. So this year, they don't have to be leading the league. They don't have to be top 10 in the league, but they have to be competitive on December the 1st. Uh, Blake, as always, thank you for your time today. Anytime. 
Stephen Bowne is the author of a new book called Dominion, The Railway and the Rise of Canada. It's a book depicting a different Canada than today. In the late 19th century, demand for fur was in sharp decline. This could have spelled economic disaster for the Hudson's Bay Company. But an idea emerged in political and business circles in Ottawa and Montreal to connect the disparate British colonies into a single entity that would stretch from the Atlantic to the Pacific. With over 3,000 kilometers of track, much of it driven through uh, wildly inhospitable terrain, the Canadian Pacific Railway would be the longest railway in the world and the most difficult to build. Its construction was the defining event of its era and an engineering triumph that created Canada, many have argued. The times were marked by greed, hubris as well, blatant empire building, oppression, corruption, and theft as well. They were good for some, hard for most, disastrous for others. The CPR enabled a new country, but it did, did come with it at a, at a terrible price. Author Stephen Bowne joins us now. Stephen, thank you for speaking to us today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Uh, your book, um, The Dominion, The Railway and the Rise of Canada, what motivated you uh, to, to pursue this topic? This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Oh, I mean, the CPRs. It's just um, the epic story of its creation is one of those great Canadian myths. It's right up there with the Hudson's Bay Company, which, you know, was the topic of my previous book, you know, just called The Company. And when that book ended, I knew the story didn't end, but I wanted to continue telling it. And, you know, this it hasn't actually been retold in half a century. And yet, you know, it's the single most important piece of civic infrastructure in Canada's history that has enabled us to exist independently of the United States. I think it's perfectly uh, reasonable to say that without the CPR, there would be no country of Canada. And, um, you know, so the opportunity to tackle that after nearly half a century of new information and new perspectives in society in an effort to bring in some different and uh, new voices and perspectives on it was, uh, well, that that's, was just an obvious next choice. How would you describe Canada prior to the CPR, uh, in regards to CPR being built? And it certainly has connected Canada, as you've said. What was the state of Canada uh, prior to that? Oh, yeah. I mean, Canada it sounds so it sounds so grand, and yet, uh, you know, the the Confederation, eighteen sixty seven, was some Atlantic colonies. There's, you know, the provinces of Quebec and Ontario. You know, most of Ontario was just illiterate rural peasants digging the in the gravel, like uh, subsistence agriculture, a lot of Quebec was like that too. Montreal was the only real significant city. The Atlantic provinces were a little more prosperous. And um, Ottawa was just a, a boomtown, mud streets, shanty towns, uh, filth, mud, leaking sewer pipes, endless construction of parliament buildings. And in this, in this world, there was John A. MacDonald, you know, the controversial uh, John A., you know, whatever else you can say about him. His grand idea, his grand ambition, his swollen ego wanted to create a country equivalent to the United States, a northern United States that extended all the way to the Pacific Ocean. He disliked Americans. He disliked um, the idea of American expansion taking over most of, you know, North America. And he just would do almost anything to avoid that outcome. And so he looked at the Hudson's Bay Company lands. He wanted to get a hold of them to the extent that they really owned them. Mm-hmm. And he looked at the colony of British Columbia out on the coast, and he sent delegates out there and promised them that if they joined with his Canada in the east, that he would build them this giant railroad all the way across the continent. And, of course, he had no idea what he was 
promising. No one has ever built anything that technically sophisticated uh, ever before. And at that time, Victoria mm-hmm. and, you know, all of its commerce was with, um, was with San Francisco. Most of the miners that had formed up the Fraser River were Americans. They were all, a lot of them are all from San Francisco, too. So all the travel, if you wanted to leave Victoria and go anywhere, you took a steamship to San Francisco and then rode an American railroad. In, in a colony of, you know, British Columbia, they used American stamps. So the probability of it joining the U.S. was very high, and it was only the inducement to have a railway constructed out to the coast that actually persuaded them to join into this undertaking. And now they had no idea that it was going to take 20 years, but, but I mean, that's, that's the story. Um, so in, in this case, as you say, uh, Sir John A., um, you know, feared a, a American uh, encroachment, but certainly was impressed by sort of the, the growth and expansion of, of the United States. Uh, one would argue this is a triumph of politics and imagination. Um, in engineering, but I, I guess there's probably a lot of uh, tragedy as well. I mean, just building a physical infrastructure like this at that time, and they certainly didn't, you know, appreciate probably the environment as much as we do today. I mean, that's part of the story too, isn't it? It isn't just about imagination and the grit of building this. There are some negatives as well. Yeah, I mean, that's what I really wanted to bring anew to this story. Um, the pre- you know, Pierre Burton's famous books, you know, the first one came out in, in 1970. You know, really talk about the, the celebratory aspects of it. Yay, rah, rah, uh, the great Canadian dream. We're going to have this awesome railroad. And, and it was all like a story of, of triumph over adversity and creation of the nation. And, I, you know, I don't want to say that that's not true. All of that is true. It was, as you said, a triumph of engineering, political uh, vision, um, creative financing, um, the labor that went into it. A lot of people took a great deal of pride in their work and their contributions. But there's a dark side, too. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with the exploitation of certain worker groups, such as the Chinese laborers. Um, you know, the, I call them temporary foreign workers of their era were brought in to British Columbia to build the most treacherous, dangerous sections along the Fraser River Canyon. Um sort of, uh, you know, east, east and north of Vancouver. And, well, I mean, over 600 of those people died building that one stretch of the railway. All the cliffs and the tunnels and the dynamite blasting it just took a terrible toll of lives on these people who already were being paid a third less than other workers. Um, some of the other stories that I like to bring in are just a bit more on the resistance of the indigenous peoples, multiple indigenous peoples, to the idea of roads and railways just being hammered through their their territory because, you know, the, the increased number of people that came along with, the, with these roads and railways that were hammered brought diseases further inland, and tens of thousands of these people were dying of tuberculosis and smallpox, diseases to which they didn't have um, immunity to in the same way, and it was ho- horrible situation for those people. And the railways in the U.S., which were just preceding our railway by a decade, let's say, <clears throat> were brought so many people out into the American prairies, just south of the Canadian prairies, that were hunting buffalo to extinction. Mm-hmm. Their hides were being used for machine belts in the Industrial Revolution in the, in the East. But now that, that all, millions of bison that were there, I mean, that was the primary food source for indigenous peoples from Texas all the way up to northern Canada's northern prairies. Um, <clears throat> when those buffaloes disappeared, that caused mass starvation of thousands of people. We don't know very much about that time. We all know, we've all probably heard of the great Irish potato famine. But uh, you know what I choose to call the, the great Canadian buffalo famine was every bit as devastating and, and horrifying to the peoples who experienced it as the potato famine. Um, so that, you know, a few things like that, I like to insert that into the story so that we have a greater appreciation and a greater understanding of the forces that were at play at this very turbulent time in Canada's history, just when the nation was just raw and being formed. 
joining us. We are speaking to Stephen Bowne. He's the author of Dominion, The Railway, the railway and the Rise of Canada. Uh, now, Stephen, uh, you were mentioning uh, British Columbia at the time and its relationship with the United States. Um, now, once the, the CPR was built, immigration flooded to the West and economic conditions improved and there's greater manufacturing as well. But if the CPR hadn't been built, do you think there's a good chance British Columbia would have joined the United States? I think it's almost guaranteed that it would have. I mean, there was a lot of uh, a lot of voices were in favor of that. I mean, in 1867, the Americans had purchased um, Alaska from the Russia. So at that time, what was you know the British colony was hemmed in by Alaska to the north, Washington State, and the other areas of the U.S. to the south, and you know five waves of nearly impenetrable mountain ranges to the east. Mm-hmm. Um, it was almost inevitable that it would have agreed to to join with the only other uh, economic power that existed, which was more or less in California at that time. And there was a, I mean, there was always voices in favor of joining Canada. And oddly enough, I mean, there was a fellow, you know, Miss Midland with, uh, with, with Star Gibbs, who was a, a black business leader who, brought five to six hundred pioneers up from California who were disenfranchised with the loss of their rights under some laws being passed in California and he settled them all in the vicinity of Victoria. Mm-hmm. He's not a very well-known fellow, but he was a member of the Confederation League, um, arguing, arguing in favor of, of British Columbia joining with Canada rather than the United States. So there's interesting little stories and interesting little um, ironies that can come into play here. Uh, my final question to you, um, we have had and continue to have polarized conversation debate around infrastructure projects. Today, we debate um, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which moves oil. Uh, where there's debate over a natural gas pipeline that would move natural gas from um, the from one side of British Columbia to the West Coast, which would be turned into liquefied natural gas. We have other uh, conversations around physical infrastructure. And this is a broader conversation around climate change as well, so it's a little different. Um, but it still takes a lot to get big infrastructure projects built. Um, what lessons do you think those that built the CPR whether it's an engineering issue, whether it's a political issue, whether it's an issue of imagination, what lessons should be learned, can be learned, from the era of building the CPR for today's political leaders and today's public? Oh, I think, I think the word caution comes to mind when you say that. <laughs> I don't, yeah, un, caution and unintended consequences. And as we've seen with, with the trends, Mountain pipeline, the cost overruns. Yes, I mean, I mean the cost the cost of building the CPR nearly bankrupted. Well, the, the entire nation of Canada, all the finances, the entire thing was about to entirely collapse, causing a mass economic implosion. The debt and the inability the workers weren't even being paid at the end, and the track wasn't even completed until the Real Rebellion gave a political cover to give it a little bit more money and a little bit more debt. Um, that same thing can happen with infrastructures now. Unforeseen problems and opposition, not everyone is in favor of these things even. Mm-hmm. I mean, the benefits of having the CPR as a country became evident decades a- afterwards. But I don't think at the time everyone would have even agreed that it was a good thing. So, in fact, there was op- there was arguments in Ottawa in the politics of whether we want this thing, whether we don't want this thing. I mean, it was not a slam dunk that everyone was in favor. It was not a big cheering squad demanding that we build this railway. Some didn't want to do it. But at, at the end of the day, though, I mean, it is true that the railway created Canada. And so, it, that, you know, if you think that Canada has any benefit to it with our reasonably peaceful, reasonably prosperous existence and our ability of our institutions to navigate, you know, peaceful change over time, um, then the railway did help create that. I mean, the Americans, you know, we're coming to an understanding of just how conflicted our own history was around this time and how everything was not so hunky-dory mm-hmm. and happy, as everyone said. But even acknowledging the darker side of the story, which I most definitely want to do, um, the American history in those western U.S. states at that time was 
was far worse for almost everyone, at least in the short term. So, uh, you know, it's one of these topics you could debate this way, debate that way, examine all the pros and cons, and it's impossible to predict the future, really, isn't it? Like, you know, for infrastructure projects of that nature, which I don't even think could be really built anymore is something as big as that, although these ones that you mentioned are, are pretty close. Yeah, they are, right? but it, it, the story is is profound and amazing in regards to the the audacity to, of the vision, and of course there's a lot of negatives along the way, but there's no doubt it opened up uh, a lot uh, a lot of the country, it built this country, it, it helped bind this country. Uh, the, the, the story itself is a profound one. It, this book is called Dominion, The Railway and the Rise of Canada by Stephen Bound. Stephen, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been my pleasure talking. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible, because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yesterday, we launched uh, our new series, The Next Million. It's a two-month-long series where we'll look at how we deal with the challenges of another million people moving here by 2050. Our population Metro Vancouver mid-century will be 3.8 million people, just under 4 million people. Think of the challenges before us and, and to be to be blunt, they're already immense. Housing affordability, transportation challenges, the need to build expensive infrastructure to address our growth. Too often we are mired in uh, endless debate and little accountability considering our region is governed by a Metro Vancouver board where 21 municipalities have a say. Well, our next guest penned a column recently in Business in Vancouver arguing we need a regional government to address Metro Vancouver issues. Joining me now is Kirk Lapointe. He is the publisher and executive editor for Business in Vancouver. Kirk, thank you for joining us. I'm fresh from getting my COVID and flu shots in the last half hour, Jazz. I'm still still here. <laughs> well, good for you. Yeah. Good for you. We were just talking about that yesterday, Keith Baldry and I, and I'm glad you did. I'm glad you came in to chat about this because I think it's really a very big issue as our region grows so quickly in its accountability, its governance. Uh, what motivated you to write the column? I think it's the specter of some of the projects that Metro Vancouver deals with, which very clearly need some very strong governance. And, um, and I look at the North Shore Wastewater Treatment Plant, for instance, as a, as a good example. Um, and uh, you've, you've even talked about this on the program, the developer fees that are now being uh, instituted at exactly the time that we're saying we have a housing crisis and we need to actually reduce uh, government tariffs and things on on uh, the price of housing in order to build it more affordably. And, you know, I, I grew up in Ontario. And in Ontario, I've, you know, I've lived in cities in which there is highly functional regional government that's looked at everything from uh, regional policing to regional transportation, uh, regional housing. Um, and the politicians who gravitate toward it have a slightly broader view uh, than the vision that you would get at a municipal level. Mm-hmm. It's not as granular. It thinks more about, uh, it contemplates the heft of a region. And in this case here, I, I've always argued that Vancouver or Surrey uh, or Burnaby or the North Shore would be so much more powerful inside Canada if they really acted as a region with regional political representation that would then um, that would then move into more senior levels of government to lobby on behalf of a region. Well, mm-hmm. I think it would be far better for our economic development, uh, far better in dealing with some of the other things that ail us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in in the perfect world, how would it work? We would, uh, it, you, know, we, you know, I'm a resident of Delta. I vote for a local council. Um, we've got 21 municipalities that, re- that run this region. This would be another layer of government. So you would vote for a Metro Vancouver board chair. You would actually have the opportunity to vote. Yeah, at the same time as you vote 
uh, for your municipality, you would vote for the region. And that's the way it, it works pretty well everywhere. Uh, it, it, it does mean, in some cases, um, expensive campaigns for the candidates because they have to campaign all around, in this case here, a fairly reasonably large uh, geographic expanse. And you have to get into all these places and try to court those votes. So that's fine. They probably have to make some considerations around what that means because it's not a party system per se. It would be no. individual candidates running for it. But uh, ultimately, you, that's how you do it. And, and yes, I know the ballot, particularly in this city, is about six feet long uh, by the time <laughs> you, you get there. Um, and I've also argued that you need probably a better filter on that to mm-hmm. make sure that people are, are better qualified to seek office. Uh, but, but in the end, you would vote at that. And, and in a way, there'd be two campaigns going on. Um, I don't think people can't handle that. I think that they, they can. They can see who might be the people that are thinking about the best interests of the region as they're also contemplating who would be their best mayor and their best councillor. So in this case, with this regional government, uh, you, let's say, as a, as a resident of Vancouver, you could vote for a mayor of Vancouver, councillors, but those mayor, the mayor and councillors wouldn't be involved in regional government. Regional government will be just a whole yeah. separate set of elected officials that you would vote for. You, look, you can set the model any which way you like, and in some cases there are appointed members, and in some cases there's a purely... Uh, elected members, and in some cases there's a bit of a mixture of both. Um, you can certainly draw upon the mayors for committees. You can draw upon them for task forces and projects and kind of thing. But what you've got now is ostensibly a, a, you know, a, a side hustle uh, for these people. Uh, it pays some of them fairly well. I mean, George Harvey is the, as, uh, the mayor of Delta is the chair. He gets an additional $110,000 a year on top of his salary as the mayor. And it's not the money that I, that particularly worries me. It's just the fact that you know you're you're elected. You campaign entirely on the basis of what you're going to do for your community. I don't think George Harvey said, you know, I, I'm running so that I can run the region and I can and and you know he, he comes into Vancouver and says, you know, by the way, if citizens of Delta elect me, I'm going to really represent you well as a as the regional chair. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think that that you have that. Uh, I think that. Um, the campaigns are quite parochial in nature municipally. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't recall a single candidate in my time living here for 20 years who has ever said, I've got these regional ideas that you know, I think I can, I can really nail it. Mm-hmm. No, they're, they're all about, um, I'm going to pick up the trash and I'm going to you know, make the community safer and I'm going to get us some transportation. And They're all about things that uh, correctly you know, municipal officials stay in their lane for. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also, I think you raise a very good point here. When something does happen at the regional level, you really don't have anybody to point your finger at, uh, yell at, lecture, or at least demand accountability, whatever it may be. Like like right now, uh, TransLink is handled by a CEO, and and yes, there's some involvement from the local elected officials, but really it's the CEO. Uh, And then if there's other regional issues, you don't have anybody to point to. We don't know... Uh, um, you know, who their senior executive team is, really. And most people wouldn't know, even though their budget is a billion dollars uh, for the region. I guess it's also an accountability issue. Clearly. And look, uh, not to disparage any of the senior staff and executive mm-hmm. at Metro Vancouver or TransLink, uh, but the fact is that they have a governance structure that doesn't provide direct accountability politically. It's very, very indirect. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you, you, can't, you can't kind of fire or... or do a recall against a municipal councillor who's sitting on a Metro Vancouver board. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in a way, the, the public is, is, I think, less than fully served. It's one thing when those governments are rather small and when there are, there are very few common interests and therefore their budgets are quite small. But now we're looking at about a billion one a year, uh, and that is only going to grow. It's going to grow because of the needs for things like infrastructure, mm-hmm. uh, housing, development regionally. Uh, will only grow. And so this is a, a government right now that I think is large enough, uh, certainly, to um, to require this kind of a direct accountability. Mm-hmm. My guest is Kirk LaPointe. He's a publisher and executive editor for Business and Vancouver. He's got a great uh, column out in Business Vancouver. I highly encourage you to check it out. Uh- 
Hey, welcome back to the show. Now, we spent a lot of time over the summer talking about drought conditions, wildfires. Well, a new report from Stats Canada shows that summer drought and extreme temperatures reduced electricity production uh, in BC last July to its lowest point of any July in the last 15 years. Now, of course, this is a province that's growing by about 100,000 residents uh, per year. Uh, significant growth, more demand, and a lot more sales when it comes to EVs as well. And it's an interesting number because in many ways it uh, highlights the challenges that are there before us. Yes, we produce lots of energy in this province, hydroelectric energy, uh, but as the years progress, we're going to have to produce a lot more with our growing population. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the latest numbers is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Uh, Good afternoon, Keith. Hi, Jazz. Hi. So the numbers here, it is amazing in this province that uh, uh, you're seeing the impacts of climate change to a certain degree, just based from July to July, that it's the lowest that we've seen uh, in 15 years. Yeah, BC Hydro's latest quarterly report is actually quite eye-opening and worrisome because it paints a picture at a time when we're supposed to be ramping up the production of electricity to switch to cleaner fuel. A combination of factors driven by climate change, which is higher temperatures, drought conditions, low snowpack, and low precipitations are all combining to drive down electricity production and drive up electricity consumption. This comes at a time when we're just at the at the launch really, of a B.C. government clean energy initiative, which is really to greatly increase our electricity use by the year 2030, which is not very far away. And Hydro now is projecting we're going to be in an electricity deficit by 2030, even with Site C coming online. That's how dire the, the, the situation is, which really... Uh, presents highlights the urgency of hydro creating new power, clean power. They've got a power call going out next spring mm-hmm. for clean co- uh, power, which is electricity and also wind and solar. We'll see what comes back. But even with that power call, this quarterly report, I invite people to check out Nathan Griffith's piece in the Vancouver Sun on this, uh, paints a pretty grim picture of some goals that may be unattainable. And it does raise the prospect, if we go through another year next year with drought and low precipitation, and low snow, snowpack, this problem is just going to accelerate in terms of its urgency and worsening. Why do you think it's been such a, a shock? Like for years we've talked about, oh, we've got abundance of energy, we really don't need Site C. All of a sudden you're telling me now, reports are showing that we're going to be out of power, or power that we're creating here and generating here by 2030. It's sort of just come out of the blue in the last few years, it seems like. It seems, although if you, you know, this has been one of my hobby horse or my areas of Sort of, I like to keep an eye on this. So the, and you and I both come like energy stories, energy policy. We know that we need more energy as our population explodes, and it just comes with it, more energy consumption. So where is this energy going to come from? I wrote a column a few months ago. Where is this, where is this electricity going to come from? No one's provided an answer. Even with the power call from Hydro, you get the impression going through their, their latest report that there seems to be some pessimism here, that we cannot meet these lofty, well, maybe that's not the right word for it, but these high goals to achieve high electricity use to replace fossil fuels. And it's a, it's a real conundrum. And so, again, the urgency is on to create these power um, uh, 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 projects. In Alberta, you've got a whole backlash in rural communities against wind and solar because it is takes up a big chunk of their land. It's an mm-hmm. eyesore. It's not the most attractive type of power project to have in your backyard. Yet we need more and more of these around BC. Not we're not going to build a lot more dams, if any. I mean, site C. We need we need the equivalent. There's some estimates nine more site Cs to to meet these electricity demands. And then you got hydro coming out with a report, which not only casts doubt on the demand side whether we can meet the demand, but then on the production side, it's really a bleak assessment because of climate change. The combination of factors is really coming together at the worst possible time. So if we're not going to build another site C just because of the the challenges before us, we go to independent power producers, let's say we do that, that's certainly I don't think going to be enough. If wind and solar is something that is, uh, you know, receiving pushback from citizens, farmers, ranchers, uh, uh, many other communities, uh, what's left? I mean, I just cannot see anybody any company well, risking building nuclear in this province in any way. Well, you know, that's sort of the, the thing in the closet, isn't it? Nuclear. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no one has the political capital to go forward with nuclear. Uh, even though Germany relied on nuclear for years, they shuttered their, their nuclear plants, which were safe and clean. Now they're back to producing coal 
in Germany. Germany's gone backwards because they've abandoned nuclear. We have nuclear in Ontario. They're not abandoning that. I don't think we're going to build nuclear in B.C., but can we build enough wind and solar fast enough? Hydro's report suggests that we're not going to be able to do that because they think we're in an energy deficit by 2030, which means in the last year, B.C. imported a record amount of electricity, particularly from the United States and some from other provinces, and that importation likely will have to increase just to meet demands because we're not going to be able to produce enough. And we haven't even begun talking about electric vehicles. Yeah. I mean, the the talk has been that just to deal with all the electric vehicles that we're going to be purchasing over the next few years, you'd require at least two more sites, maybe three. And that doesn't include just the growth of human beings moving here, which means we need more housing, more everything else. And every house these days, it seems like certainly single family homes, there is generally an air conditioner that comes with it uh, as well. I mean, somewhere along the way, we do have to make a decision. The rubber hits the road. You can't be in a deficit, think our neighbors are going to help us out. I mean, do you see a will there from elected officials saying, look, we have to move forward quickly and get a project going of some sort, whatever it may be, but we've got to start generating electricity beyond just a call from independent power producers? I think what we're going to see is is a reduction in the expectations of electricity levels. And one thing I keep looking at, I think governments are going to have to drop these targets that are associated with electric vehicles because I think they're unattainable and they become almost a luxury item compared to the everyday energy costs you have in your life, particularly at this point. They're still an elite vehicle. Uh, This goal of getting something like 90% of all new vehicles by 2035 electric is just, it seems unattainable. And when you stack that up against what the other priorities when it comes to electricity use, I think EVs, I've got long had skepticism on how this is going to replace the, the combustible engine car in our car culture. And whether it should or whether we should just take the money that's being invested in EVs and throw it wholly en masse into transit and clean transit. And I think that's where the discussion is going. Um, The other issue, uh, you know, at at the end of the day here is that uh, the political will we've talked about uh, needing to move forward uh, to to do all of this. Hydro doesn't talk about this or, you know, certainly I know. I've heard some conversation, but it may, would it also just be changing our behavior, which means, hey, uh, Jazz Johal, you've had dinner at uh, 6.30. Uh, you know what? Don't fire up the dishwasher till 11. Or are you going to pay more for that power during that sort of you know 7 to 10 p.m. period? Yeah, this is time of use, and this has been kicked around for some time. A lot of people were suspecting that's what smart meters were all about. That was going to dictate your energy costs. But I think we're headed there. I think hydro is going to be very creative in their solutions to this, what's looming as a crisis of, of uh, redirecting consumer use at certain times of day. It seems to be a no-brainer, but I, you know, they've got a lot of money invested in thinking about these things, and I think Hydro is going to be very creative in uh, the days uh, ahead of how to uh, both meet demand in terms of what the consumers are looking for and meet production in terms of what governments are looking for. Well, uh, it's one of those, those issues, you know, Keith, we're talking about it here, but you know one day the robber's going to hit the road, and one of these days it is going to require some political will uh, to really be honest with the public and say, look, we're heading into a, a, a uncharted territory. We've always had enough power, and the cheapest power. I think even now our power is the fifth cheapest in North America, but we're heading in a different direction, that's for sure, as more and more people move here. Uh, Key, thank you for your time. Okay, Jess, take care. All right. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.